I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at $14.99, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Come on, lads, it's time to kick off. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Thanks to those who have joined the When Saturday Comes Supporters Club on Patreon so far. If you haven't, please have a look at patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes. Harry, which exciting treats are in the Northumbrian platter this time? Well, I've been to Poundland in the Metro Centre, Dan. So that's the kind of risks I take for this podcast. And I suppose <laughs> the customers in Poundland, none of them were wearing masks, Dan, because the, the citizens of Poundlandia, the Poundlandians, they're a, they're a free and independent people who refuse to, refuse to kowtow to big government. But anyway, what I've come away with is I've got some Guinness chocolate caramels, oh, creamy gosh. caramels flavoured with Guinness beer luxuriously rich and I'm pleased that it actually has a warning about drinking sensibly on the back although the the, the Guinness content is one percent so in order to get drunk I think you'd have to eat so many of them you'd probably lapse into a sugar-induced coma before you're any danger to anybody anyway and, and along with those I've got some some round trees dessert pastels have you seen these Dan because they're oh, round no. trees is from your neck of the woods you've been in York yeah. recently well I have and these are these are inspired, it's a dessert menu, and it says inspired by four classic dessert flavours, cherry bakewell, blueberry pie, apple crumble, and mango sorbet. Oh, no, I think I'd have gone no. for a sticky toffee pudding or a sherry trifle. <laughs> um, or a banoffee pie, Dan, which I thought of the yeah. other day, and then I, re- I realised that for a long time, I thought that like bakewell tart or the Eccles cake, banoffee was actually named after a town, which I imagined <laughs> was in Scotland. <laughs> and I actually, I actually once looked because I thought, oh, I'm Bonoffi. I looked it up. I thought, probably they'll have a football team in the Highland League, Bonoffi Thistle. And then someone pointed I couldn't find anything about it. And then someone pointed out to me that it's just a corruption of banana and toffee <laughs> and isn't actually a Scottish town. So I was a bit disappointed by that, obviously. But the, the other sad thing is that I can't actually taste any of these um any of these treats because I, I've suffered a, on Tuesday, I suffered a true sort of 2021 mishap. I burned the roof of my mouth on a vegan on the vegan cheese topping of an artisanal sourdough pizza that had just come out of a, a wood-fired oven. 
Um, I can't think of anything more up-to-date mishap that I could have than that. Unless maybe I cut my finger on a can of New England IPA from a microbrewery in Bermondsey. <laughs> on the Banoffee front, I'm always surprised when I see Mullingatawney on a, an Indian menu. So I always think it's a small town in the centre of Ireland. I think it should be Mullingatawney. They could play Banoffee in, in a European in a, in a qualifier. <laughs> for, yeah, they've got, the, got, got some lads who are demons with the hurley. <laughs> all, all called like Johnny Mac and Taggart. There are five, five generations of, of the Mac and Taggarts. Who are... I think they're, they're shin, they're, when, they, when they do the hurling shinty crossover with the team from Bonoffi, it all kicks off. <laughs> and any other exciting news from the North? You must finally have some games to go to this week. Well, that's the reason that I was at the Metro Centre, Dan, because I was on the way to see Dunstan uh, play Middlesbrough under 23s. Um, mm. You know, with my blistered mouth, it didn't. I wasn't affected. And I'm pleased that uh, Middlesbrough have a good player called Farrell, Farrell Willis, who looked quite impressive. So now that I've said that, you'll never hear from him ever again. Um, um, but the, the only the only real excitement was that the man the man sitting beside me said that uh, since the lockdown, you can't go into a cafe just for a cup of tea. He said the only want the only want people who'll, who who want a ten pound quiche. Which I assume you meant ten pounds in money rather than ten pounds in weight. Yeah. But a hell of a size quiche for one person to take on, wouldn't it? Anyway, um, yeah. But the Northern League season actually starts on Saturday, the third. You know, before the end of July. I don't think that's ever happened in history. Mm. What's going on? It's like summer football that we were that we've been told is a, is the thing that we need. There'll be a winter break next. On the overheard people front, I was queuing in pound stretcher recently and the attendant behind the counter said pardon to me a few times and then apologised because she said her parrot had shouted so loudly in her ear she'd gone deaf. <laughs> <laughs> and I asked I asked her what the parrot had shouted, but she didn't hear. So we just oh. carried on with the transaction. <laughs> just just came back to me there. It was a very enjoyable moment. And how's London life, Andy? Well, first, before London, some news from, from Merseyside. Um, Everton have won a trophy. Um, the cover of the new issue, WSC, refers to Rafa Benitez becoming Everton manager and the unlikeliness of them winning a trophy. And they've only gone and won one. Florida Cup, only two teams taking part. Um, Everton and Milenarios of Colombia due to Arsenal and Inter dropping out um, because of uh, COVID problems. But you can only beat what's in front of you. And in Everton's case, uh, it's 11-10 on penalties. It came down to the two keepers um, taking penalties. But Everton won a penalty shootout without Jordan Pickford, um, who, of course, is resting up at the moment. It's the new uh, reserve uh, keeper, Begovic, saved a couple and then scored the winning penalty. So, uh, well done, uh, Rafa, I suppose. Um, yeah. I've been intrigued on my laps around the park recently. I should say it's a, it's a brisk walk, never a, never a run. Um, there's this small fenced off building that, that no one ever goes in. I just go past and can't work out what it is. And I, the other, from a distance the other day, I saw someone wearing what looked like a military uniform going in there. I suppose it could be like a fancy dress store, or mm. could it be like the front door of the military industrial complex? You know, with this thing we've heard about, quite a, there's quite a low entrance. If so, you need to make sure you didn't bang your head on the way, you know, you might set off a, a nuclear device. Anyway, well, more on that as I have it, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully. Um, no no further sign of parakeets. You mentioned parakeets. I, I mentioned recently I've seen some parakeets for the first time in Bermondsey, but getting a lot more seagulls, which I don't mind because they frighten the pigeons. Always pigeons stop uh, messing up the, uh, the balcony. I think... Uh, I'm trying to work out the hierarchy actually between seagulls and crows, uh, the, the pecking order, if you will. Yeah. Um, sorry. Um, I think seagulls are like the alpha, I think probably, though crows may be a bit more intelligent. So 
if they were to extract information from you, the seagull would do the heavy stuff, then the crow would be the one to sigh and say, we don't like this any more than you do, you know, before, they, <laughs> before the seagull came back in again for another go. Uh, some soccer news. Um, uh, you may have seen that we mentioned in our weekly newsletter, the howl that Neil Warnock apparently keeps signed photos of himself yes. in a man bag around his waist. I'm much as seen this. He was filmed last week being asked for his autograph at a non-league game, and he produced a pre-signed one. Mm. Um, always come prepared. Did he have, did he take them with him on trips to like home base or super drug and stuff? Do you think? I'd like to think so. <laughs> do they have different values that could be traded for different things? Like, is one of him at Plymouth worth, say, two of him at Cardiff? And can they get you? You know, can you get like a whole kilo of bananas if you've got a, a Warnock, a Plymouth Warnock, but you can only get, say, a packet of Tunnocks? You know, with um, with a Cardiff. I don't know. And also, um, for the first time in a while, I've, I saw the belligerent Bermondsey window cleaner. Though. This is a guy I first noticed a couple of years ago. I was walking along the street near my block of flats. He's cleaning windows and he's seemingly slightly absent-mindedly singing. We are Millwall, super Millwall, like that. Yeah, we are Millwall from the... But then he'd also add, at the end of that, he'd also add, fuck off, Charlton, we're Millwall, like that. <laughs> I thought, well, there could be an old person inside that fan. I wonder what the hell's going on outside. Yeah, there might be a Charlton fan. <laughs> there might be, there could be an addict or a valiant. What will they think? You know, but then the other day I saw him and he was still singing, we are Millwall, but he left out the... He left out the Charlton admonishments, so uh, maybe perhaps lockdown has calmed him slightly. And like, <laughs> maybe like maybe it was some so. good-natured banter with an old person. It could be. I'm sure it fan. brightened up their day immensely. <laughs> it did. It's a sort of it's a sort of chirpy banter they would enjoy yeah. round your neck of the woods. That's right. I think the Warnock carrier was more of a bum bag, wasn't it, or a, or a fanny pack, as the Americans call it? Yeah, a man bag. Man bag. Yeah. I don't think Neil Warnock with a man bag. What I'd, I'd call it. I think it was a bum bag. I, I, We'll have to look more closely. I think he probably thinks of it as an attaché case. (laughs) Well, the new edition of When Saturday Comes magazine is out now, and alongside the regular magazine is a supplement looking back at the Euros and the new season guide, which is always a highlight. There's a new question in there this time. That's which breakaway league should your team be part of? And I wondered what some of your favourite answers were, Andy. Uh, yeah, well, we, we always ask a, a different question each year. So this one we thought would be, we'd be topical about the Broadway League. So um, uh, Huddersfield fan Sam Priest says, I'm convinced there are a few clubs who would like to join us in the snappily titled, we made it to the Premier League and it should have set us up for 20 years, but we somehow find ourselves struggling again, league. <laughs> um, there's a Piers Pennington Oxford fan says, we should be in a league for clubs with an X in their name. Sure, Ajax would win every year, but trips to Amsterdam and Xanthi along with Halifax and crew. <laughs> what's not to like and Tristan Browning a friend of the pod says um, Tramia should join the Alliterative Arenas Football Federation and end this round of games against AC Milan Bayern PSG and Elgin City <laughs> and Harry did you have a chance to look at that yes I did yeah I, I like the there was a pound we mentioned pound stretcher and Poundland. Um, B&M also available <laughs> uh, the, the Wicker, uh, Wickham mentioned the pound stretcher league in which prudence wins prizes I like, the, I like the use of the word prudence, particularly. Um, uh, Swansea linked with Steve Cooper League, um, which now, which Hugh Richards says covers most of the bottom half of the Premier League and top half of the Championship, which is true enough. Um, and also like Bernie's answer of the Wet Tuesday Night League, um, which obviously would also include Stoke City and I think Grimsby as well. Well, I liked another friend of the podcast, Glenn Wilson's uh, astonishing fact that apparently Doncaster is technically part of Scotland, having been signed over in the first Treaty of Durham, which I quite like. So he suggests that Donny break away and join 
the Scottish League, which of course I think Wigan and Gateshead both tried to do in the 1970s, I think. My favourite name was the Stanislavlift Invitational. I thought that was a brilliant name for, for a league. And, and um, Mark Siegel, the West Ham United fan, suggests uh, a league based on Claret and Blue teams, so West Ham, Villa, Burnley and Scunthorpe, which brought me to my what my own suggestion would have been a nicknames-based setup where we had the Avian League with Canaries, Magpies, Owls, Eagles and Seagulls, a Mammals League with Rams, Stags, Tigers... Uh, industrial league hatters, the iron railway men, saddlers, potters, blades, yeah. and then a fruit league. But I've only come up with the cherries of Bournemouth and the Blackpool tangerines in that one. But that surely has to be the way forward, I think. Oh, the, mar- the meringues of Real Madrid. Is meringue a fruit? I'm a bit out of the loop now. I don't know. I don't think it is. I think it's more of a pudding. Oh, is They'd it? be in with Bonoffi. They'd be in with Bonoffi, <laughs> the, Italian gi- the Italian giants of AC Tiramisu. Do they not grow on trees, meringues? I, I, I haven't been meringues. out of the house. I think they did. I think, I I think you're thinking of, of that famous panorama thing. Like Richard Dimbleby and the meringue Dimbleby, Yeah, there's, there's spaghetti trees, yeah. That's right. I think, there was a meringue, I think there's a meringue harvest in that. That'll be it. As mentioned, that bumper issue 412 of When Saturday Comes is out now. Andy, tell us about some of the magazine's other contents. Uh, right, well, we, we've got a, a Euro supplement, 16-page Euro supplement, and 32-page uh, WSC, as well as the, the 24-page pre-season preview. In the Euro supplement, we've got um, sort of post-mortems, I suppose we can call them, for Scotland and Wales, and a look at how Italy and Denmark uh, achieved what they did, um, plus uh, David Stubbs on how... This England team has come to be seen as a, as a progressive force, often in, in, in the face of uh, official disapproval of various kinds. And um, as he says, right now, England is pitted against England, the nasty England emboldened by Brexit, uh, the amplification of social media and the abiding fact of braying English maleness passed miserably from generation to generation against the other England. Fans who served, surged up in protest at the defilement of the Rashford mural in defence and celebration of a great player and a great man. Uh, we also got Tom Davis on Gareth Southgate and his role in helping you know, improve the image of, of and the performances of the England team. And uh, as he says, Southgate can't change England, but has allowed the team to be a better and more expressive representation of it. Um, we've got um, TV reviews by Cameron Carter and Taylor Parks on the BBC and ITV coverage. Um, Cameron says of, of the BBC pundit debates that Alan Shearer was exactly as important to each debate as a workplace fridge temperature check is in the month of a carpet wholesaler. Um, whereas <laughs> Taylor on the ITV pundit says, amongst other things, Ali McQuist is a far superior pundit now that he no longer thinks of himself as sexually attractive. Uh, <laughs> while Ashley Cole, he says, was granted more opportunities to showcase his uncanny absence of charm. I thought was uh, <laughs> sort of pinpointed that quite well. Um, in the main WC, we've got the winners of our, amateur, uh, our annual writers' competition, named after our, our former contributor David Wangren, who died a few years ago. The winner this time is Claire Simpson, uh, about writing about how she would have liked to have played football when she was younger in the 1980s, and now she does, having joined a, a five-a-side team uh, in her 40s, and now she's a, a parent. And um, we've got Graham Gibson, who's a former Brecon City player, and what it's like to be unexpectedly dropped from a team, and how he still broods on it a long time later and um, Jack Butler Byrne who's a Leeds fan on moving house to somewhere where it seems a lot of his neighbours go to watch Leeds as a sort of neighbourhood outing and he's wondering whether he should join join them as his support for Leeds so far has been quite a, a solitary thing so it's led him to sort of uh, 
consider the, the, the nature of his of his leadshood. Um, we've also got um, James Corbett and Rafa Benitez unexpected appointment as Everton manager. Um, on the Everton message board, I look at I look at um, someone asked who will his first signing be, and, and they got reply uh, a pastry chef, which gives you an idea of the kind of <laughs> direction that's heading. And this is a bit of a theme there, actually, because Sam Allardyce was also referred to that onto that board, which I've mentioned before, actually, is the Count of Monte Bisto. <laughs> um, <laughs> and also we've got of course uh, we've got harry's column which this time is on the art of the free kick mm. it, it isn't well kind of it is it's a based on the fact that a friend of mine who's a, a medical scientist um often mentioned on this podcast he explained why football's so difficult to play uh, medically because the um the leg muscles are for our, our leg and feet our legs and our feet are only really supposed to do very basic things. So the the motor neurons that control them control lots and send the impulses to thousands of muscle fibers, whereas, for example, in the arm, they send them to only uh, sometimes only half a dozen. Um, and that's why, as, he, as I didn't say this in the article, but that's why we can move our fingers individually, but we can't move our toes individually. Mm. Um, and also the response time of the hand to, a, to an impulse from the brain is twice as fast as the response of the foot. Um, you know that's hence why dancing is so difficult for some of us, uh, or indeed <laughs> indeed walking in my case. Um, so yeah, so it's all about that. And, he, and, uh, and, he, and my friend points out that that's what makes football so exciting is the sheer haphazardness of it. It's actually why we like it because uh, you know no one you don't get this kind of debate which you get in football. Like in 1974, people say yes, West Germany won, but they weren't the best team. No one says that about tennis. No one says Novak Djokovic won the men's singles, but he wasn't the best player. <laughs> they just accept that's the best guy wins because you know the best the best player wins because everything's very precise when you use your hands, but when you use your feet, it isn't. So that's what yeah. So that's why that's what it says. That's why we like football because basically it's much more of a lottery than any other game, which I think is quite interesting. Mm. Jackpot ticket, pound a goal. Subscribe to When Saturday Comes and you'll get every issue delivered direct to your door in 100% recyclable wrapping which we used to call a paper envelope. You'll also save money on the shop price, receive discounts on books and T-shirts, and get free access to our complete digital archive. Sign up at shop.wsc.co.uk. Jackpot ticket, pound a go, draw it half time. Right, I'm going to give the random topic generator a shove. Here we go. Andy Dibble, Dandy Town Hornets FC, things managers keep in their jacket pockets, and it's landed on terrible starts. Harry, what on earth does that bring to mind? Well, I would, I would think it brings to mind Southport, Hague Avenue. 1975-76. The only time I've ever been to Hague Avenue, I, I recall it because the lady in the, 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 the queue at the what I thought was the tea bar, the woman in front of me asked if the rosé was chilled. <laughs> and I thought, oh, it's Southport. <laughs> Here we are. It's very difficult, different from Cali Durham. But anyway, uh, Southport 75-76 season. Um, it, the season got off to a bad start even before it had begun, if that's a, if that's a possibility. I don't know if it is. Um, the, Southport were badly in debt at that point, and they got a new commercial manager. 
And he decided that the way to, for them to get out of the debt was to organise a pop concert at Hague Avenue. Um, and it was a marathon pop concert, the biggest UK one-day pop festival. Um, and it was headlined by an act which were described on the poster as the greatest rock and roll band in the world. Who might that have been in 1975, you ask? Well, Shawadi Wadi, obviously, is the answer. So Shawadi Wadi with a headline act also on the bill were Sutherland Brothers and Quiver. Were they the people who did that song, if I said if you, if I said you had a beautiful body, would you hold it against me? Or was that the Bellamy <laughs> Brothers? I can't remember. So anyway, while Sutherland Brothers and Quiver were on the bill, 12,000 tickets were made available for it, um, but only 1,000 were sold. Shawadi Wadi didn't appear in a contractual dispute, and the whole thing was a financial disaster. Um, that instead of making money, lost money. So that's how the season started. Then, before again, before the season even started, um, Southport's manager, Alan Ball, not not that Alan Ball, a different Alan Ball, he used to go over and play in Sweden, uh, in Sweden over the summer, and he came back late. Um, he'd been warned about it before, and he was fired. So he was fired before the season even started. Jimmy Melia was appointed as manager, and then the season began, and... Southport didn't actually get their first victory till December the 6th. 18 matches, th- three draws, 15 defeats. Um, that was in the league. Also along the way, they lost 6-0 in a League Cup tie to Newcastle with Alan Gowling scoring four goals. Um, they were beaten 4-1 by Spennymoor in the FA Cup. Uh, Spennymoor then in the Northern League. Um, Jimmy Mealy resigned in September. He was replaced by Duncan Wellborn, who came in as player-coach. In November, things had got so desperate at Southport that they called in the hypnotist Romark, not his first appearance on this podcast, I suspect. He was brought in um, before the game against Watford. It was a Tuesday night game. I think he was brought in. I think Granada TV may have brought him in. So he hypnotised the players for the for the Tuesday night home fixture against Watford. Uh, something obviously went wrong with the hypnotism um, because keeper Kevin Thomas gashed his head so badly on a roof beam in the dressing room that he had to be taken to the accident emergency ward. And Watford won 2-1. Um, Southport then travelled to, to play Tranmere on the Friday and Romark, proving that part of being a hypnotist is his brass neck, uh, said to the players not to worry because his hypnotism would still be working on the Friday night and would be just as effective, which indeed it proved to be because they lost to Tranmere as well. Um, the, by then the chairman had resigned after a vote of no confidence from the board um, and finally... Though things turned around with the appointment of another person who's featured on this podcast quite a lot, Alan Brown. Uh, which Alan Brown was it? I asked myself. It was the Alan Brown from Nottingham Forest, not the Alan Brown from Corbridge who got uh, Sunderland relegated. That clown Alan Brown, not him. The other Alan Brown, he came in and he actually did a fantastic job. Um, I think in the last 14 games when he came in, um, they won six, drew five and lost just three, thereby not finishing bottom. They were five five points off the bottom of the old uh, fourth division ahead of Dismal Workington, who I think went down that year. So that was so that's what I think of Dan. That's the the story of Southport there from seventy five seventy six. <laughs> what about you, Andy? Well, I should just say Alan Ball, who's at Southport, was Alan Ball senior. He was the father Ooh. of Alan Ball. He was the I'm, manager. I'm making the player, nice he, of that. But he was a he. They for some reason they allowed him to work in Sweden in the summer, so he went to Sweden as a manager. So he was at oh. Southport for a year. Then was supposedly allowed to go to Sweden then to come back to Southport. But then that, at some point, that arrangement, obviously, he fell foul of the club over that in some way, so he left. But he, he was the manager, not, uh, not a player. Oh, right, he was a manager in Sweden. So he was like summer man. It was his summer job yeah, as a manager weirdly, in the Swedish yeah, team. Yeah. Fantastic. Did he have the Allen Ball high-pitched voice? 
I wasn't. I, I actually don't think he did. He, they son. didn't really look much alike, actually. He, he, mm. No, he, I think he was a bit gruffer altogether. I think. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Sorry, I, 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 I derailed that slide. Well, bad starts. Uh, uh, one that comes immediately to mind is Mick McCarthy's start at Sunderland. He took over from Howard Wilkinson towards the end of two thousand two three when they were almost down. They'd only got one point from the last ten games under Howard Wilkinson. Um, but then they lost all nine matches and the Mick McCarthy was in charge of the season. They didn't even get a draw. You'd think, you know, new manager, a bit of a boost. Mm. Most of the defeats were quite narrow, but they only scored twice in those nine games. So whatever new ideas he brought in, they didn't work. Maybe that's what Roy Keane was objecting to. You know, Ireland's World Cup training camp the previous summer, there wasn't enough, you know, rice, pasta and cereals, as Roy <laughs> Keane famously said to Mick McCarthy. <laughs> Mick McCarthy's blunt, plain-speaking Yorkshire losing streak. I've said that before, actually, but I do quite like saying it. Um, previous season, Carlton Palmer won his second game as Stockport manager after taking over in November 2001 and didn't win any of the next 17. Um, they were already rock bottom when he took over, as with Sunderland, so the damage is already done. But again, a new man not getting not getting the players fired up, really. I mean, do, do new managers not, not bring some bonding exercises with them? And Don Revy famously had um, carpet bowls and bingo at Leeds, and that certainly worked there. Maybe we should have tried that. Brian Clough, in his first month at Brighton manager, in successive matches, for only three days apart, lost 4-0 at home to Walton and Hersham in the FA Cup, then 8-2 at home to Bristol Rovers in the televised match. It's a rare case of a regional ITV covering the third division game. Then a week later, lost 4-1 at Tramis, so 16 goals conceded in three games over 10 days. He stayed to the end of the season. They finished 18th and he left to go to Leeds, where, of course, as we know, that also wasn't a happy experience. It's also Bootle, um, the, the other league club from Liverpool, um, Everton's alternative rivals, or they would have been if they hadn't only spent one season in the league. Um, they began their only season losing 7-0 at Ardwick, late, late in Man City, and were voted out of the league. Though They, they finished a relatively respectable. They finished 8th out of 12th. They weren't rock bottom. Uh, the team included a fullback called Smart Arridge, Smart as the first and we later played for Everton. They had a striker called Hope Robertson, um, who was a previous Everton player, and another fullback known as Jimmy, in quotes, Punch McEwen. So I don't know how he got that name. Maybe he looked like <laughs> Mr. Punch, or maybe he was a contributor to, to Punch magazine. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about terrible starts from players, whether it's in a match or, or at a, a club, and Jonathan Woodgate at Real Madrid, of course, comes to mind with that one. I wonder yeah. if you had any others. Yeah, there was Mick Harby, 19-year-old goalkeeper with Forrest. Three games towards the end of 67-68. 3 nil home defeat by Sunderland, followed by 2-6-1 defeats at Wolves and Liverpool. He didn't play for Forrest again, or seemingly anybody else. Doesn't even seem to have played in non-league. But it was 1968, so maybe he went off to find himself, you know, get his head together... <laughs> Maybe learn to play the tablers, you know, that kind of thing. Grew his hair a bit, that kind of stuff. And then also at Leeds, I mentioned earlier, John Faulkner, who Leeds signed after they played Sutton in the FA Cup in 1917. Faulkner was a centre-half and Sutton lost that game 6-0, but he obviously did enough to make an impression. And he only played two games for Leeds, though he did have a, a, a respectable career later. He was with Luton when they got promoted from the second division a few years later. Um, but he scored an own goal in his first game for Leeds. And he later said of that first game that he got off to a bad start. As Don Revy said, good luck to the players before they went out. And he replied, thanks, Don. And that caused this sort of awkward silence because he's supposed to say, thanks, boss, as the other players <laughs> told him later on. So he... Uh, they did sort of mess up there. Also, of course, we should mention Graham Sooners, player manager, or predictive text seems to come up on my notes has changed this to grab sounds, but I'm pretty sure his name was <laughs> Graham Sooners. Sent off in his first game as Rangers player manager against Hibs, uh, August 1986. Of course, they did go on to win nine titles in a row. Um, lost his temper a bit in a midfield uh, melee, or possibly a stramash. 
mm. just not that kind of player. That was it. It's very surprising. And uh, every time you see him <laughs> as a pundit, he never seems to be looking for things to get angry about at all, does he? So I don't know what came over him that day. Um, so she mentioned, as I have before, but I, 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 I was sort of get, trying to get out of my system. Uh, a game I played in at primary school once. Our stand-in goalkeeper he used to play at centre half. Scored an own goal, but he's taking a goal kick out of his hands, and he somehow kicked the ball back over his own head. And so the image still haunts me. I'm almost, I'm almost tempted to name him, actually. I think I'd better not. You know, you might, you might have family. I think was that the goalkeepers, you know, often have had disastrous debuts. Uh, Stanley Milton, um, who played for Halifax Town, he, the, the regular Shea keeper was uh, Watty Sherlaw, who sounds like mm. a fantastic. It sounds like a character out of Lost of the Summer Wine, doesn't he? Uh, 1934. <laughs> so Stanley Milton came in for the game at home to Stockport County. Halifax were losing 2 0 at half time, so not the greatest of starts, but it got far worse in the second half because he conceded 11 in the second half. Stockport won 13 0. That's the biggest victory, I think, in English league history. Um, Stanley Milton then went on. He played a few more games for um, for Halifax, and then he moved on to York Town, mm. um, your your neck of the woods, where he was also in goal for York when they lost seven 0 at home to Rochdale, which I think is their biggest ever home defeat. Um, I, I, I'm saying that, but I know you know, Dan. You're going to go, no, it isn't. That sounds <laughs> anyway, about right. So, I'll do. <laughs> so he's a, so he sort of st- he stands out, and um, I think also the East German uh, goalkeeper Jens Ram. Uh, he made his debut for Dynamo Dresden in the second leg of the Cup Winners' Cup tie against Bayer Uerdingen of West Germany in 1986. Um, at half time, Dresden were in the le- were in the leading the tie five one on aggregate, and then 29 minutes uh, into the second half, their regular keeper, who was Bernd Jakubowski, he was injured. Jens Ram was brought on for his first ever appearance for the team, and he conceded six in the last half hour. Uh, Dresden lost the tie seven five on aggregate, um, and he he only played a dozen more games for Dresden before he went off to play for a team called Fort Schritt Biskofswerder. I think I think that's almost right. But Biskofswerder sounds like uh, it might be the place where the caramel biscuits come from, doesn't it? But I don't think it is. I mean, having said that, you know, Dino Zoff uh, on his professional debut for Udinese, uh, Udinese were beaten five two by Fiorentina. So you know, you can mm. recover. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. I was wondering about which team had had, and this might be one for people to send in, had had the worst start when they'd moved to a new ground. So arguably Arsenal stopped winning anything when they moved to the new ground, didn't they? It feels Wasn't like. it, but Southampton didn't do very well at St. Mary's because they could, didn't they call in a witch to, to lift a curse or something at St. Mary's? I think Southampton, I think there was some witchcraft involved in St. Mary's and possibly Oxford's new ground as well. When they moved from the manor ground... To whatever the stadium's called now, it's gone out of my mind. I think they, I think there was some. I think they struggled when they first moved there. And didn't um, the manager of West Ham said that when they moved to the Olympic Stadium, he thought that the, there was something to do with the sight lines of the pitch or something that he thought affected his players. I can't remember. I think there's something about that too. So I think a few teams have made bad starts in in new stadiums. But yes, people might remember talking about people who recovered. I mentioned Dino Zoff there because then I also thought remember that. that Pops into my mind the fact that in the 1982 World Cup, Italy in the group stage drew nil-nil with Poland, drew 1-1 with Peru, and drew 1-1 with Cameroon. And if Peru and Cameroon's game ended in a nil-nil draw, but if either of them had won it, Italy would have been eliminated. And of course, they went on to win the World Cup. Mm. And with also with terrible starts of manager, you should mention Ebi Skovadal, Danish manager Aberdeen. His first season, 99-2000, his first six games they lost and didn't score, had a goal difference of 0-18. 
after six <laughs> games. And two games later, they won 6-5 away at Motherwell, and they picked up a bit, though they still finished bottom, but they stayed up in the league as the league was being increased from 10 to 12 teams. But Scovdale stayed at Aberdeen for four years, and I think was quite popular. And two years later, they finished third. So, um, so think on. Yeah. <laughs> directors who was th- thinking of sacking managers. Herbert Bamlett, uh, who was the manager of Manchester United when they made their worst ever start to a season, lost the first 12 matches, conceding 49 goals uh, with a goal difference of minus 35, quite a achievement in 12 games. That was the 30-31 season. And Herbert Bamlett, who was actually manager of Middlesbrough, gave George Campbell his debut in the, the 26-27 season. But the odd thing with, with Bamlett was that he came from Gateshead. That's not the odd thing about him. I just mentioned that in passing. <laughs> um, but, before, but before he became a manager, he'd been a top-class referee. And he, in 1914, he refereed the England v Scotland game and the FA Cup final, and then took over as manager of Oldham Athletic. That was a weird career progression. I mean, maybe Mike Reed or someone like that might might be offered a might be offered a coaching job. I don't know. I think it's unlikely, don't you? So also maybe that thing, maybe teams get a, a bad result out of the system, like a sort of sluicing effect. Like El Salvador lost ten one to Hungary at the eighty two World Cup. It's the only time a team has scored got into double figures at a World Cup. And then the last next match to Belgium was only one nil. There's a goal after ninety minutes, and then they only lost two nil to Argentina, one of whose goals was a penalty. And they kept the same goalkeeper as well, which I suppose it shows admirable faith, uh, or maybe not a huge vote of confidence in the in the in the backup keeper. <laughs> the second choice keeper when the tenth goal went in, he thought he was rubbing his hands. Yeah. So it's very similar. Saudi Arabia lost eight nil to Germany at the two thousand two World Cup. I remember watching that game; it was just awful. It seemed like every time Germany crossed the ball, they scored. It was just embarrassing. But that also seemed to have the same kind of effect. They got the badness out of the system. They only lost one nil the next game to Cameroon. It's still nil nil until the sixty sixth minute, and then. Uh, only 3-0 to Ireland. Ireland's third goal was very late on, and they also kept the same goalkeeper as well. So maybe similar similar principle by there. Time for the part of the podcast where we each choose a record from that wonderful website, 45football.com. Andy, what have you picked this time? I've gone for Jean Narcy, a Belgian singer who recorded a few songs of Belgian clubs. This is C'est l'Union qui sourit, it's Union Who Smile, but from 1987. But Union Saint-Gilles was one of Brussels, one of Belgium's oldest clubs. And this year they've got back to the top level of Belgian football for the first time in 50 years, uh, nearly 50 years. Um, and they've made actually made a sensational start last weekend. They won 3-1 away at Anderlecht. Um, they also won 3-0 at Anderlecht in the Cup a couple of years ago as well. So if, you, if you're a young Union Saint-Gilles fan, that, that times have never been better. Um, they've got a wealthy owner, and actually Tony Bloom, who's owner of Brighton, is now the owner. So I hope he sticks with it. I hope all goes okay and he doesn't sort of suddenly withdraw and they all, you know, they drop down the league thing because they have spent quite a lot of time in the second and third divisions over the last 50 years. But for now, uh, say l'union qui sourit. Parmi tous ceux qui luttent pour l'honneur, 
Un plus fameux dont la force magique Domine tout d'une pure splendeur Dans les combats, mais peu de destinées Il fut toujours le héros éclatant Son nom s'évoque en de glorieux trophées Et c'est pour lui que nous allons chanter C'est l'union, c'est l'union And Harry, what's your own choice this time? Well, coincidentally, I mentioned uh, Dinamo Dresden uh, when we were talking about the uh, bad starts. Um, this is uh, so. This is their song, which is uh, "We Are the Twelfth Man." It's from the eighty-eight, eighty-nine season, so a bit later than their disastrous UEFA Cup game. Um, it's when they won the uh, the. GDR Championship. I think probably that was the last year it was held, maybe. And this is a, a song, yeah, We Are the Twelfth Man. It's now the club's official anthem. It was recorded by a man named Bernd Oust, um, who, who was founder of a, a band called Elektra. Uh, he was the, he played the flute in it, and uh, often they are described as the East German Jethro Tull, if such a thing can be imagined. <laughs> I did find an interview with him, and he says that when they when he and his he and his student friends formed the band in 1969, he said. We did not know that we would go on to write rock history as Electra, um, but there we are, uh, as we know they did. And so this is this is his effort, and I think it's a it's got a strange bit at the end of a sort of a, a, a nasty kind of ranting bit at the end, which well I thought it was nasty ranting. Um, maybe it was just someone. I think it might have been just imitating some commentary, but it's got, it's quite maybe because of the German language and and uh, the past, it, it sent a bit of a shiver down my spine. choice this time Bolton Wanderers here we go again from 1974 Paul McLaughlin and the Bolton sound 6,000 copies of this were pressed which amazed me really all that's missing really is the great commentator Dave Higson shouting what a ding dong do it could do with that to pep it up a bit interestingly it's noted on the website that a Wanderers song contest organised by EMI took place in 1973 but without any results perhaps they should have televised it but I was wondering if Andy knew of any North West based musicians that could have helped out at that time well there's the Gibb brothers possibly down there I would would query your suggestion that they were North West based at that point because they were originally from um, Chaltercombe Hardy via the Isle of Man but by that stage I think they were living in the south of England shortly of course to decamp to Miami where they had the second part of their career as uh, as um, disco divas
Each month on the When Saturday Comes podcast, I have a quick chat with someone from a club fanzine or podcast in a mirror of the way in which WSC once acted as a pivot for this country's vibrant zine movement. This time, I was joined by Dan Porritt of the Huddersfield Town podcast, and he takes that chance. So, uh, Huddersfield Town podcast is called And He Takes That Chance, uh, which is named after the well, the famous line, if you're an Huddersfield fan, I suppose, uh, from the playoff final when Christopher Schindler scored his, his penalty to send us in, into the Premier League. Um, so that, that's where the name comes from. Um, we, we actually started it the season after that uh, achievement. So we started in July 2018. Uh, so it was the first season in in the Premier League. And it was mainly set up because we didn't really have anything like that at Huddersfield Town. Um, obviously, being a, a smaller club, um, in general football in terms there's not so much media coverage um, like there is the bigger teams there's, there's odd pockets of fans forums and sort of discussions online on Twitter and stuff like that but we didn't feel that we had a a, a, a real sort of forum to, to gauge his opinions and stuff like that so that's probably the main reason why why it was set up um, like many other club podcasts uh, we have a uh, a weekly episode after after matches to discuss the you know the previous match and look forward to the next match. Um, we also have uh, in season specials where we may do like a half season review or uh, end of season review, pre season preview, uh, things like that. Um, we've also run special episodes where we've had um, guests, um, so former players have been on. We've had uh, the chairman. Uh, both chairmen, actually, the the current chairman and the the previous chairman, uh, Phil Hodgkinson and, and Dean Hoyle have have been on, and we've had um, directors from the club, and we've had um, people from marketing and and that sort of stuff, and we like to get those on maybe you know once a quarter, and it just gives us a chance to sort of question them more about behind the scenes running of the club and it gives fans a really good insight into things that might not get asked by your traditional journalists um, so as you know being a football fan on Twitter a lot of people have uh, opinions and stuff like that so we, we sort of review what's being asked and what people want to know and it gives us a really good opportunity to sort of not not to grill these people as in like a you know like a proper interview but it just gives us a chance to have a chat with them and they can explain maybe it in a little bit more depth, things that they wouldn't necessarily say to um, to the general media. Mm. Uh, we generally have a panel of four, uh, normally made up of uh, three sort of fans, and then we we often have Matt Glennon from uh, BBC Radio Leeds, which is our local um, BBC broadcaster. They do the commentary from the matches, so we often have have him on to sort of offer a little bit more inverted commas expert opinion. Um, we've also got Phil Senior, who used to play uh, a goalkeeper for Huddersfield Town. He's a he's obviously a fan of the club, um, but he he's, he comes on to offer a professional uh, opinion as well. So we have a, a wide range of um, wide range of people on there, and we we discuss a, as as like I say, many other club podcasts do a, a wide range of of things, all things from how we've played to do we like the new kit. So it's 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 quite a varied. Um, discussion. And you mentioned they're doing the after matches. I'm sorry to bring this up, but what was the after match like after Norwich City last season, 7 0 defeat? Um, well, <laughs> it's funny because since we actually set up the podcast, um, we're on, I think we're on episode 107 at the moment. I think we've I've just did a little bit of research before I came on and 
we did uh, we played 168 matches and since we set up the podcast we've only won 37 <laughs> uh, so we're quite used to discussing losses but uh, yeah 7 yeah, nil were a very a very glum um a very glum episode uh, yeah. i don't think we discussed it in too much depth because it would have been a six hour long episode um, so we i think we skirted around it and moved on to preview in the next match pretty quickly <laughs> and what about you as a fan then when did you start going why did you become a town fan so myself i started going in around about 1990 uh so I was six years old when when i first went down and and again like many other uh, lads of that age i were, I were taken by my, my father you were a, a massive town fan uh, growing up and, and his father before that um, his uncle actually played for the club uh, back in day uh, so I think that's where the where the affinity originally came from um, so yeah just just started going down with with him to the to the old Leeds Road ground um, so we had about four seasons there before we moved across to to the new stadium but as a you know as a six-year-old going to a, a stadium at the time is um, you know like many others fell in love fell in love with the football and it, it coincided nicely with Italy 90 as well in the summer which I think many kids sort of that age range will will really remember as the first time that they kind of you know got on board with with football properly and and since then just been going ever since really I've had a season ticket pretty much every season since then um played watched you know throughout my life up until now and it's really nice now because I get to go with my two boys and, and sort of start the the cycle again. Um, I often think I've suffered enough watching town, so they can as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about then? What have been the worst of times? Well, as many town fans will tell you, there's there's probably been quite a few worst of times that you could that you could pick from. But um, probably myself in around 2003, when the club were putting into administration. Um, I'm sure many people remember the collapse of ITV Digital, which sent a lot of clubs uh, spiralling into debt and the, the chairman at the time um, put the club into administration. We had Mick Wadsworth as manager and I, I remember the football just being really, really poor around that time and crowds were crowds were down. There was just a lot of lack of interest uh, in the club. I think we ended up with eight players on the books um, at, the, at the end of that season or certainly before the start of the, the season before after and there were sort of question marks whether we'd, we'd actually survive but uh, we managed to rally around and, and raise some money as fans and um, you know Ken David bailed us out um, there's a lot of controversy about that and why he did that he's also involved in Huddersfield Giants which share the stadium with us um, so I think there were ulterior motives that if the if the football club went that would lead the rugby club to go in as well but fair play put his hand in his pocket when he had to sort of ran it on a absolute shoestring for a period of time but you know the club is still there um, and without that who knows what might have happened what about then the best of times so ironically that little period there in at the end of 2003 led to probably my one of my two favorite seasons um so the 2003-2004 season after that administration and like I say we started that season with only eight players on the books if you ever speak to the former manager Peter Jackson I'm guaranteed that he will tell you that because he tells everybody that (laughs) (laughs) because he was the manager that took us into that season Uh, we made we made a few signings obviously put a a squad together and um, we ended up finishing fourth uh, in the playoffs after being in top three pretty much throughout again it was first time I'd seen town down in in lower leagues it was nice uh, on a personal level to get to a lot of stadiums I like to to visit as many as I can, get to a lot of stadiums where we'd not 
uh, really been to. And I think when you start a season like that, there were absolutely no expectations whatsoever. So to have a good season uh, were brilliant. We brought a lot of youth players through that season from the academy. Uh, so it's always nice to see homegrown talent playing for your club and, and doing well. And uh, the end of it, we like I say, we finished fourth and uh, we got to the playoffs uh, final and ended up winning 1-0, uh, sorry, on penalties against Mansfield. Um, so it, it ended a, a really good season and a really enjoyable season. Um, and then obviously you've got the the promotion to the Premier League season as well, which I don't think anyone will, will ever forget again. Went into that season with David Wagner as a new manager, not really expecting out. Um, I think we were tipped by most bookies to actually get relegated that season. And again, the the way that he brought that squad together and and the album, the sort of synchronicity between the the fans and the the club as a whole, it's something that never been experienced before at town. And I don't think you know. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think we'll ever experience it again. And he, you know. The team were such a solid unit. Um, it, it were just chalk and cheese to what we were used to. And again, playoffs final, one on penalties against uh, against Reading, and first time in in Premier League, which were absolutely amazing. Huddersfield uh, is one of my favourite away days. I love the town, and I love a lot of brilliant pubs there. I still call the ground the McAlpine. <laughs> I know it's been the John Smith and other things since. Do you ever wish the ground had a it had a proper non-sponsored name, really? And what would you have called it? Do you think? Yeah, I do because I don't like I don't like grounds to be sponsored. Like you say, I still class it as McAlpine Stadium. Sometimes you know when people are talking, yeah. it's hard to remember who sponsors it this year. And yeah, it's a little bit like other grounds. You know, you know them as you know Spurs were White Hart Lane, Man United is Old Trafford, Liverpool is Anfield, and I know a lot of clubs. If they do get a sponsor, try keep that in. So it'll be just as an example. I don't know the Carlsberg Anfield Stadium, which I think sounds even worse. Yeah. Um, as a name, I, I don't know. It's probably just something simple like the New Leeds Road or, yeah. or something like that. Uh, it is literally just off Leeds Road. Obviously, you've been before, so you, you know where it is. So it's only you know a stone's throw from the old from the old ground. But yeah, chopping and changing names. Um, it's not something that I particularly like, but you know in these in these modern times in football, commercial revenue overtakes tradition a lot of the time. And, you know, for a club like town who don't have a massive income, a stadium sponsorship deal, you know, means a lot to the club in terms of money. So you, you can kind of understand it. Mm. Do you hear that from a lot of other away fans or is it just Borough fans that really like Huddersfield? Because we've Hull and Huddersfield are two of my favourite away. I was just wondering if you'd heard that much from fans of other clubs. Yeah, to be fair, we do get quite a lot of positive feedback at town. Like you say, the, the stadium itself is quite unique uh, in the design. There's probably only maybe Bolton that um, that is similar. And the guy that designed our stadium actually designed Bolton's. And I think he was on record of saying everything that he got wrong at Uddersfield. He made right at Bolton with the fielding corners and, and yeah. stuff like that. So I think the uniqueness of it helps. Um, there's quite a, a, a decent set of pubs in Uddersfield. Mm. It's not far. If you come on train, it's only a... 10, 15 minute walk from town centre, um, past various pubs. Um, we tend to be, you know, quite a, a generally friendly uh, fan base. So away fans are, are welcome in, in most pubs um, throughout the throughout the town centre. And yeah, on the whole, a lot of fans do do enjoy coming to Huddersfield, which is nice because, you know, again, commercial revenue and away fan ticket sales are, mm. are important. In the late 90s, I went with a Leeds supporting friend to a pre-season friendly. I think Leeds won 5-0. And mm. after the match, the gate was open and we went onto the pitch and 
uh, feigned playing football in the penalty area with an imaginary ball. We were eight, 18 <laughs> years old, but it didn't stop us. So that's maybe why I love it so much. No one stopped us from our fantasy game in the penalty area. So what about this coming season? We're back. We're back at last. What are you looking forward to most about match day? Well, I'm looking forward to wife not asking me to cut grass and you know do gardening on a Saturday now, which is uh, which is good. But no, just getting back to getting back to going to to football, getting back into the habit, seeing people who, you know, I've probably not seen for well, two seasons almost now um, in time, I suppose. And there's a lot of, you know, you have like a little football family, don't you? The people that you don't know, but you do know, they yeah. sit around you, they sit, you know, two or three rows behind and you say, how do? And, yeah. you know, you, some of them, I don't even know what they're called, but, you know, so seeing people like that and, and meeting up with, with friends who have not seen for a while and it's all right watching it on, on iPlayer or on TV, um, but it, it's just it's just not the same. Like I said, I take my two lads, so again, it, it's the day out with those. It's, it's making the memories. My youngest is six and he's absolutely football crazy um he watches everything and anything to do with football um he just started going uh towards the back end of you know the covid season and um, when it all stopped so he's absolutely buzzing he's got his first proper season ticket this year um so he's you know he's ready and raring to go and it's just yeah just just getting back and there's no better feeling is there than, than being in that stadium at, at three o'clock on a saturday and as much as you you're pessimistic sometimes it, it just it's just what you do in it it's just it's hard to explain to somebody if you had to explain to somebody who didn't go to football why you love going so much it, it is difficult sometimes because it just becomes what you do and what, what you enjoy and sometimes the the result don't go your way but I've got amazing memories of growing up and you know following town up and down the country and some of my favorite you know favorite days out are when we've we've got beat heavily and stuff uh, just the, the camaraderie the all that that goes with it, really, um, and I'm just hoping that when we when we run out against uh, Fulham, it's the second match we're away at Derby, first match. So first match of the season at home will be Fulham. The atmosphere, I can imagine, will be will be electric, and hopefully the you know we can get a win to set us on as well. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash when Saturday comes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.